maybe 56 miles long, called Flathead Lake. It's got rivers and just all sorts of great scenery. But the fact that it was on the reservation, there was a lot of uh, racial tension. Mm. And so that was, that was tough because there's just so much racism. Like what was the tension? It was just like... The tension was like the white people wanted to hunt on the land mm. and they wanted, they wanted it to be like any other land. Yeah. Not realizing that, no, there's, you signed a treaty saying that you could do these things. Yeah. But you can't, you know, hunt. you have to pay. If you're going to hunt, you're going to have to pay or this or that. And it just, white people felt like they were being victimized. Like, mm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And what is, like, what is your parents? My dad was a carpenter and my mom was a counselor. And she actually worked for the tribe. Oh, okay. Um, as a counselor. And then, yeah. But we had a little, we had 20 acres, and so my dad wanted to, it's kind of a farm. We had sheep and goats and ducks. Yeah. And we had cattle, you know, one horse, ducks and a dog, cat. Oh. And my grandparents were only four miles away, and they had a big, big ranch with lots mm. of cattle and a wheat farm and pigs and they milk their, you know, so I do over and help milk cows. And yeah. So I grew up doing farm work, you know, driving tractor, um, shearing sheep and helping my grandparents push, push their cows around. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's where cowboy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't feel like I'm a legit cowboy, but because my heritage is so embedded in in Western culture and cowboy culture. Yeah. Um, and most of that actually isn't even about my Montana. It's the North Dakota ones where my mm. dad came from. Mm. Like my grandpa was a, he, he broke Bronx. Uh, he was a real cowboy. Yeah. And my dad grew up um, in that culture. He was a horseman and his brother was a rodeo um, champion and his sister was a rodeo queen. Mm. So... It's just kind of that cowboy culture. Yeah. Uh, we were talking about this early hip-hop. What was your first, like, what was the first music that really hit you? Well, I think that was one of the really good things about growing up on a reservation is hip-hop being the music of the oppressed yeah. really found a toehold in, uh, on reservations before other parts of, of the state. Wow. So... It was really embraced by the native folks first, and then mm. I, I had ears, and I was yeah. like, "Oh man, this is where it's at." Because I'd been just listening to George Strait and Alabama and yeah. Randy Travis, and uh, but once I started hearing these breakdancing compilations, that's what it really was about. Was these movies would make it right, right, like a break dance, breaking, electric boogaloo, all that, yeah, and that just blew my mind. Like, yeah, so everyone was breakdancing, but no one really picked up on the rap side of it. Right, right. Except for me, because I come from this really strong lyrical... I mean, cowboy poetry is... I grew up on cowboy poetry, which is these mm -hmm. rhyming couplets that are brag talk, they're uh, colloquial. I mean, it's really similar to hip-hop, right? Yeah. It's like, it's a culture, it's a little subset, and... Uh, and like, you're, you're, you would hear, like, your parents? They're like, my, where like, did you hear that? Like, my... Um, my grandpa's brother, his name was Chris Sand too. He was a cowboy poet. Mm. Um, yeah, like um, an example would be, away up high on the sire repeats where the yellow pines grow tall. Old Sandy Bob and Buster Jigs had a roe deer camp last fall. Well, they'd taken their horses and running irons and maybe a dog or two, and they loud they'd brand every long-eared calf that come within their view. And any old doggy that flapped long ears and didn't bush up by day, Got his long ears whittled and his old hide scorched in the most artistic way. You know, just... Oh, yeah. It's that kind of thing. Like, to me, that was... For, it was a living poetry. Yeah. Um, so then when I heard rap, I was like, this is the same thing, but better, because it's, it's got a beat behind it. Yeah. It's funky. It's fresh. You can dance to it. Um, so it opened my eyes, but I, but I, had, I was informed by... Rhythm and rhyme before 
hip-hop got to be. Right, right. Um, so everyone else was breakdancing, and I start rapping. Mm. You know, I'm 14. Yeah. And uh, I was breakdancing too, but I wasn't as good a breakdancer, but I was like, I can rap. I know yeah. how to write rhymes. Yeah, it's, that's such an interesting time to me. Like, my friends that are about your age, like, always tell me there was like a time where breakdancing like eclipsed rap almost. Like, oh, was, big time. Yeah, it was like, yeah, almost like rap was just like, yeah, something over there. Right. Know, there was the pillars of hip hop, but breakdance was number right, one, right, right. first on the list. Were you like going out and like rapping for, for people? In the in the area and stuff. No, because I didn't really, I didn't even understand that that's something people did. Yeah. You know, yeah. because I know you go out and you break dance for people. You right. Go to, you challenge people. You battle people. But rap was just kind of something that I didn't know that it was really such a thing because right. it wasn't emphasized in the movies. Right. And right. that's all I was watching was the movies. Um, if I would have seen Wild Style. But I didn't see the really quality stuff. Mm. I saw just kind of the the B movie, right, breakdown right, right. stuff. So I didn't know. So all I was doing was just writing it, yeah, and uh, enjoying the process of writing it. But mm. I didn't know you could perform it until I came to college in 1989 mm. here at the University of Montana, and uh, I met this guy named DJ Dave, and he uh, he would just take. He would make beats out of, just on cassette, like he'd find a good break, and then he'd just like record it onto another one, yeah. and then go back and forth until it was like 18th generation, Right, right. but it was enough of a Paul's beat, tape. and then we would put the tape, and we'd go to open mics, and it was just uh, Sandman and DJ Dave, oh, wow. and uh, I mean, it was, <laughs> it was great, it was, it was all right for that era, but we really didn't, we thought we were just the first ones doing it. Maybe you were in Missoula in 1989. Well, absolutely. Yeah. No one else was doing it. Yeah. Yeah, we couldn't find anybody at all. Yeah. Um, he was from Minneapolis, so he had a little, he, he had an in. Right, right, right. But uh, so when he found me a, a rapper, he's like, whoa, Montana. I remember there was, there was this one military guy who'd come in to watch the open mic. He was African-American. And he was really, uh, he was cracking up the whole time. You know, he's just like, he's like, he's like, don't quit your day job, Sandman. But thanks for bringing a little bit of soul to Missoula. And so you'd just be playing on an open mic with like anybody, like acoustic acts or bands. Yeah, or nobody else was rapping. Yeah. yeah. We were totally radical. There wasn't much respect. But, you know, it was good for me because that's when I decided I better learn guitar. Mm. Because up until that point, and I was... I was 19, 20. I was 20 by that time. Yeah. So I didn't really play guitar. I knew a few chords. Yeah. But uh, I realized I got the bug for performing. And I was like, nobody in Montana likes my raps. Mm. I better learn how to do some folk songs or country. And so that's what really turned me into the rapping cowboy was because then I, I started um, getting into Hank Williams, you know. Yeah. And... And then started to incorporate the cowboy poetry and all that mm. and bringing in that rural side of me that, I was kind of, that I'd been running from all my high school years. Yeah. I mean, I was just, I was wearing almost like cornrows. I didn't know what they right. were at the time, but like I'd braid my hair like really tight. And yeah. I was like, I was like trying to do dreadlocks or something, but I didn't, but they were just little tiny braids. So I was a really weird kid. Mm. People accepted it more? Big time. Or, yeah, or then, I, then I was like, then I became somewhat of a, a draw. Yeah. Like, this guy can write. Because I just learned the basic three, four chords, but I was informed, my lyrics were informed by rap, so I mm. could write raps that are a lot better, I mean, songs that are a lot better than your average singer. Yeah. Because I was incorporating different elements, different ideas, tighter rhymes, yeah. tighter rhyme sequences that I'd learned from hip-hop. And uh, people didn't know why, where I was coming up with these interesting songs because they weren't like anything anyone was writing, but 
I knew what it was. It was this rap influence. Oh, yeah. yeah. When did you first like, put an album out or something like that? It was 93. I went to Evergreen State College. I went two years to U of University of Montana. And then I got out of here. I went to Evergreen. And uh, yeah, immediately started recording some tapes with a buddy. Oh. Put out cassette tapes. I started my own label. I called it Loner Records. Oh. And um, basically, there's like four song, four to six song um, tapes. And then I'd sell them for two bucks mm. at shows, open mics. I still have them. Like all my, I have like 12, I called them Loner Four Plays. And they're just like, it's something short and sweet, two songs on each side, oh, yeah. three songs on each side. <clears throat> yeah. And my first CD was in 96. Oh, okay. And then since then, I put out 12 more. Oh, wow. What was that like, like doing what you were doing in Olympia, like at that time? It was still kind of the open mic circuit yeah. that I was really milking. But that was a hot scene back then, mm. you know, where you could, you'd get a lot of people come to open mics and they'd wait for your set and then they'd buy your set tapes. Oh, wow. So they just attend it like it was a show that you yeah. were playing. Kind of, yeah. yeah. And then I started playing all these uh, benefit shows mm. because I really got into Bob Dylan mm. and, I, and Woody Guthrie and I was really um, finding that... Uh, activist side. Oh, yeah. Um, now, whatever your bet came along was kind of a deflating... Like, when I first heard Loser on the radio, it was kind of exhilarating on one hand, because I was like, this is exactly kind of what... I knew this song was going to happen. I just didn't know when. I was yeah. like, maybe I could be that guy that wrote that song. Right, right. Um, so when he wrote it, when that came on the radio... On one hand, it gave me a little bit of a boost because people were like, well, here's another, here's like a contemporary doing the same thing. Yeah. In my mind, of course, I was like, I've been doing this 10 years before. Right, right. I mean, he probably had been too, but I had a chip on my shoulder a little bit because mm. um, I felt like he was stepping on my territory. Yeah, yeah. But since then, he's really went a divergent path. Um, I've really stayed folk. Um, and the hip hop that I do is you know, maybe more underground hip-hop, where his stuff is more majestic pop and with strings. Right, and, right. Uh, I mean, he's done, you know, with Midnight Vultures, he did some good raps and some kind of R&B stuff. But he's just more of a musician, more of a... informed by classic rock and that, and I'm more informed by, uh, yeah, like folk stuff, like the Cowboy yeah. Poetry, the Woody Guthrie, the... Um, and I consider old, a lot of hip-hop to be folk music, too. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I think that happens a lot. Like, something comes out, and then it makes it harder for somebody else to do their thing. For, at least for a minute, you know? For a minute. Yeah. But I think it was the best thing, because really what you want to have happen is you want, you want someone to do... You always want to innovate. So yeah. if someone's going to beat you to it, and do it better than you, then that's good. It gives you, you can stop wasting your right, energy. Right, right, And then you can do, okay, well, I'm going to do this other thing. Yeah. And it, eventually you find your thing that right. no one else is doing. And that's uh, kind of where I've been for a long time. Yeah. And would it say, if, if you left that alone and moved towards something else, what did you move towards? What I moved towards was, um, I guess you could just say minimalism. Mm. Uh, another interesting thing about Beck is the year that I moved to Olympia, it wasn't, a, but that year or a year later that Beck was there recording on K Records oh. um, in Calvin Johnson's basement. He put out One Foot in the Grave oh, on K that. Records. Okay. So he, and he'd been, he was like hanging out in Olympia when I was there, yeah. but I wasn't quite aware of him. Um, but I, I ended up recording my second CD like a year after he did One Foot in the Grave in Calvin's basement also. Oh, okay. And uh, 
a funny story there is Isaac Brock from A Modest Mouse. Mm-hmm. He was just a teenager at the time, and he'd he'd heard my first CD because it, it was in the free box at this one uh, at the Rocket magazine that I'd sent in to get reviewed. Oh. And he came in and he goes, "Hey, who is this guy? This sounds like this old cowboy named Sandman." Yeah, <laughs> some old timer. And anyway, but yeah, so even Beck was even in Olympia. Right. So his spirit was definitely kind of floating around. Um, but yeah, so minimalism, like K Records is all about minimalism. Yeah. So I was, that was kind of my, my tripod of my three legs is, would be like cowboy poetry and folk music, old school hip hop and kind of indie pop, indie punk, indie punk yeah. pop, totally. that K Records stuff. I might have my timeline messed up, but that, was that the, around the time like that they were doing like the Halo Benders and stuff like that? Or the... Halo Benders came like a year or two later. Okay, okay. But uh, but but the Riot Girl scene was huge. Yeah, like yeah. Bikini Kill, Slater Kinney, um, and K Records put out their records. They did some mostly Kill Rock Stars kind of capitalizing oh, right. that. And Kill Rock Stars was there too, but um, but yeah, like I'd run into Kathleen Hanna from Bikini Kill at mm-hmm. Kinko's because I'd be up all night making my cassette tape covers and stuff, yeah. and she'd be in making her uh, you know rag girl feminist zines, yeah. and so it was a pretty rich time. I mean, okay. the year before that, she was hanging out with Kurt Cobain. Kurt Cobain was in Olympia too, mm-hmm. so I mean, this was a rich cauldron, yeah, to be part of. Even though I was kind of on the outskirts, I wasn't ever central to it until years later. Mm. And that's why I call my record label Loner. Because mm. I was like, I liked being that lone uh, cowboy kind of experimenting and not being part of any scene. Right, right. But therefore not being excluded from any scene. Right, right, right. And how long did you stay? Long time, about twelve years. Oh, okay. With a year and a half in Nashville, where I decided I wanted to go see what the South was about. Oh. Wow. And learn about country music and all that. What was that like? It was good. I learned a lot. I mean, I didn't learn what I wanted to learn, but I learned a whole other thing, which is just for the first time I was surrounded. I was a lot. Of, I was surrounded by African American culture. In Nashville. Yeah. Okay. Because I was from Montana, North Dakota, where it was just native and white. Yeah. Yeah. And Olympia was pretty white too. Some Asian. But it was my first real taste of, of black culture. Mm. <coughs> so that was great. Was it. Because I always wonder what Nashville would be like to live there. Was it like weird to be in. You know, it's kind of, it kind of seems like it's like. A factory for yeah. like the like pop country. Yeah. It was horrible. Yeah, back in the late nineties, I mean, country music was really at its pinnacle and it was like the golden era of this new sound, all the in the nineties? Yeah, in the nineties. Like what like what kind of stuff? Well, everybody from Garth Brooks to Clint Black to Alan Jackson to mm. Reba McIntyre, they were all They'd already made their hits in the early 90s, but their legacy was just, like Shania Twain was huge during that time. Yeah. So country music was just big. Yeah. Like the Dixie Chicks were just coming out. And it was, I like that music, honestly, but it, uh, it was a factory. It was just all about making money. Yeah. And yeah. so it wasn't that great for me as a musician. I mean, I, nobody gave a crap about me. I started a band called The Workhorses of Yesteryear. We called ourselves Nashville's finest hip-hop jug band. And that's what we were. We were a trio. And it was a jug band music, yeah. but with hip-hop. So it was fun. It was, we had a little cult following. But now Nashville's really blossoming in that kind of underground um, scene. Mm, yeah. Like now... It reminds me of like what Austin might have been like in the 70s. Mm. Nashville's reclaiming that 
mantle of like a good, interesting new stuff. Mm. Boundary pushing. Is that where Johnny Corndog is? Yeah, Johnny, yeah. Johnny Fritz is there, and uh, Shovels and Rope, and Jack Black, and uh, lots of other bands I can't think of right now. Oh, yeah. yeah. Throughout all this time, are you staying current as a listener, like a hip-hop listener? That's a great question. Uh, I was trying to a degree, but what really captivated me was uh, soul music, like a mm. neo soul. Oh, right, right, right. Like that's what that's what was really feeding me. Mm. I mean, seriously, R. Kelly, Mary J. Blige, Maxwell, D'Angelo, um, Lauren Hill. Music, Soul Child, Jill Scott, Angie Stone. Uh, to me, that stuff was really interesting. Yeah. Because it was just so soulful. Mm. Uh, and it's what I needed to listen to. Yeah. But hip hop wasn't really doing it for me because I was so old school in a way. Yeah. That I was like, you know. I was probably like DMC, for instance, you know, like he started getting into Neil Young in his late mid thirties yeah. and Bob Dylan, uh, he'd already heard enough rap. Right. And right. He, the rap he liked was probably from the eighties and seventies. Yeah, totally. I was kind of the same way. Like, I really was an old school rapper because yeah. I mean, I was from that era when I was, when I started rapping. Right. Right. Um, so to me, New rap is almost like, I don't know, like, it's getting too busy, it's, getting, it's not interesting to me anymore. Mm. Now in hindsight, I see how it is. Yeah. Like, I really want to go study Tupac and Biggie, yeah. and I want to study Wu-Tang. Um, but I just, I just didn't have the time and I didn't, I didn't hang with the crowd that was listening. Yeah. I mean, I think I feel that way about now sometimes. Like, yeah. I can hear stuff, new stuff, and recognize that it's interesting or good, but it's, it's there's not like a personal connection. That's right. Uh, yeah. And even Kanye, who is so interesting, is so unique, and is, um, I know I need to study him, but I have a little bit of a blind spot. Yeah. But I know that teenagers, they're going to be lit on fire by some of that right. stuff. Yeah. Also, um, I realized I had to make it my own. Like hip hop to me is, if you don't make it your own, then it's not hip hop. I mean, hip hop has, hip -hop has to be fresh. It has to reflect your culture. Yeah. So I was really studying cowboy poetry again. Mm. I was like really getting into it and realizing that the vast beauty of what my culture, where I come from. Yeah. I knew I had to um, have a heavy dose of that to make hip hop make sense uh, to who I was, instead of it yeah. just being a reactionary, um, you know, rebellious thing. Like, I want to be different. I wanted it to be an educational tool that said, hey, go find your culture, clean up your people mm. um, you know if we're trying to clean up racism don't uh, don't just try to sound black right go back to North Dakota go back to Montana make friends with all these people who are voting for people who they shouldn't who are against their interests mm. try to inform people that's when hip-hop is a revolution is when you can you know, I'm an emissary for hip hop, which means I have to go in the cracks that people of color might not be able to go because they don't have the privilege I have. Right. They don't have the access. They don't have the history and the ancestors. And so that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm like a spy in the house of hip hop. 
<laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. Like when you said your your most recent tour, like there were cities where I was like really surprised that you played. I mean, we 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 played some small towns and stuff too, but like like spots that I kind of think it would be hard to imagine you playing, like like you said, like Tulsa. Yeah, Grassy, Alabama. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> yeah, Marfa, Texas. And it's like, who, like, like, are the, who, who are your fans at this point? Well, my, fa- my fans. I know it's funny to yeah. say fans. No, but yeah, I know what you mean. Who's checking it out? You know, I have a lot of fans who might not come to a show mm-hmm. because I price my shows high, 10 bucks. Mm. You know, usually. Yeah. Um, because I have a daughter now, so I go out with the intention to rock a crowd and bring home $300. Mm. So um, that means I can't play all the cool places. Mm. So what I do now is I play house concerts. And I just build myself as this. And I, I'm the rapping cowboy. I'm, I'm like Woody Guthrie reincarnated. Yeah. And um, so the crowd that comes out is maybe more of a middle class, uh, generally white, um, educated, like my age, like in their 40s. They're mm-hmm. people who grew up and they, they resonate with my references. You know, when I talk about Michael Jackson, they're going to get excited. Yeah. Uh, if I talk about Prince, they're going to get excited. But so... They get hip hop. They get breakdancing. They've been there, right. uh, but they also get. Um, they also get that there's this secret revolution happening that they don't know how to be a part of anymore because they're raising families, but they want they want to feel privy to it, and I I kind of have my finger on that pulse a little bit. Um, so I can be this little window into their world. Yeah. How did you get the idea to do the, those kind of shows, like the house? The it house took a lot of trial and error. Mm. Kind of like the reason I don't sell pill- I don't sell uh, t-shirts anymore. Mm. I just sell pillowcases because after year after year, I would be selling these salmon silkscreen t-shirts. But you know, one size doesn't fit all. Yada yada. Yeah, I got to display them. But I finally realized pillowcases. Now that's on a one-size-fits-all. It's thematic, Sandman, put you to sleep. I can sell them for five bucks a pop. It's easy. I can stack them up like Persian rugs. So after many, many tours, I realized, okay, it's pillowcases is what sells. Same deal with house concerts. Yeah. I stumbled into a few house concerts, and I just started realizing more and more, like, oh, wait, a house concert... You're not a middleman to try to sell alcohol. You're not waiting around till 9, 10 for the show to start. Um, the people that put you up, the people that put on the show are going to feed you usually. They're going to let you stay there. It makes everything easier. Yeah. It's just a one-stop shopping. Right, right. And they, and they do all the promotion. They have a Facebook event page and they just invite all their friends. And all you really need is, if you get 10 people who pay 10 bucks, that's 100 bucks. And if you have 10 people who like the show, and they usually do, because they, they like the intimacy, and they want to support you, yeah. then they pay another 10 bucks for a CD. Mm. You got 200 bucks. Well, the more you do it, it eventually start getting 300, 400. Yeah. And, but at a, at a rock show or something, you got to split it between people... The older you get, the less of a, you know, I'm in this awkward middle age stage. If you become an old weirdo, like Michael Hurley, the punks will come see you. Who's Michael Hurley? He's like this old quirky folk singer who oh, okay. has kind of got a resurgence or, you know, certain old blues singers. Yeah. They, they're hip again all of a sudden. Right. And I'm, through the, I'm in my Han Solo stage, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm just navigating by myself. Yeah. And, uh, 
<clears throat> I'm not really hip anymore. I'm not young and cool. I'm not old and weird. I'm just this middle-aged dude doing his thing. Mm. And it works for me. Well, it's, it's really cool. Like, you know, something I find my friends and I talking about a lot is like, you know, we're musicians and we're all, for the most part, we're all like, basically like living in poverty. Yeah. And it's like, and we talk a lot about like, well, what if one thing happens that pushes it, pushes you down and you can't, you know, you can't do any more tours. Exactly. You can't. I haven't heard many people be like, like, yeah, I had a kid and then I had, then I just like, flip the script with these house shows. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like it's more often that it's like, just yeah, they're grinding all. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I did go on hiatus for about three years, though. Right. right. When she was born, but now, now it's a new story. But yeah, I can't be frivolous anymore. I show, each show has to count, and each show has to uh, have to get. Because I, I lived in poverty big time yeah. for years. I mean, I lived in a van. It's just bad for your health. It's bad for your mental health. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it becomes demoralizing. Show after show, and you're, not, and you're getting 50 bucks or right, less. Right. And yeah, so I just can't do it. Someone might offer me 150 and I get a little joy out of saying no. Mm. Even though in the past that would have been a huge, really, I'm going to pay triple digits here. Right, right. But, <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, yeah, a bunch of shows you now can't play because you're getting like nothing. Yeah. Or it's just in a while. Every once in a while I'll do it just for the fun of it. Yeah. It's kind of like a comedian. He'll go back to, you know, whatever, the club. Yeah. I guess how did you find out, you know, uh, this is of interest to me in particular because... I feel like I'm kind of like navigating the same yeah. thing. Like, how did I guess? How did you find out there were people <coughs> that were willing to like give you what you needed and and, and work with that? You know what I mean? Well, what I did was I made a I made a YouTube video. And it was two minutes. I was like, okay, this I I need to make a video that makes my makes my show irresistible. It has to have humor. It has to be short. Has to be well done. So I put a lot of effort into making one YouTube video that was basically how host a house concert with Sandman. And I build myself as the once and future king of the house concert circuit. Nice. And I had this little skit at the beginning. Um, and then I just sell it. It's like a commercial, but it's funny to watch. And I just sell it. I say, do you have five or more friends. Do you have an apartment, a house, a calf shed? Um, there was maybe one other thing, but I was like, do you have that? Good, that's all you need to host a house concert. Like, I wanted to make people that, all they might have is their like college apartment that can only fit five people in it. But when they watch that thing, they're like, I can host a house concert. Yeah. So you kind of hook them with how easy it can be. You do the math, that's only 50 bucks. But once you start talking to them, you say, well, here's the deal though. I won't be able to stop in this town because I can go to this other town instead and I can make 200 of this. Is there any way you can bring like 22 people? You know? And then they're like, yeah, I'd love to try. And then they throw a party. Yeah. And so once they're hooked, one, the thing is, they have to get over their mental block that says what they have isn't good enough. Right. Because they want, they want to help. And then once they see that they can do it, because a house concert could be anything, um, then their mind starts expanding, and then they're like, okay, well, I actually could bring a lot of people to this. Yeah. I just need to do a little extra promotion. And I, I'm readily available, and I say... You know, if you need any posters, if you need any particular videos, like, I'm at your service. I'll make sure that it's really easy. You put up a Facebook event page, 
and I'll put the right videos that make people really interested. Um, another thing that really helped my cause was I was the subject of a documentary film oh. that uh, went on to went on to sixty uh, sixty film festivals. Oh wow! And it won like best of at Edmonton International, Seattle True Independent Film Festival, the Atlanta DocuFest, um, the Flint. Um, documentary film festival like one first place so I became somewhat of a I won't say celebrity because the documentary showed me to not be like a celebrity type but more like right. a, a fool almost but a, a, a comedic character that it helped anyway I could, I could show that trailer to that movie People are like, oh, this guy is famous. Yeah. Even though I wasn't. I was 39 at the time. Well, 30, it was basically a couple of years, 37, 38, 39. Um, so I wouldn't call it my like golden era. Like my mid to late 20s, I would have rather had that been documented mm. or my early 30s. By the time they finally got to me, I was driving semi. I was in North Dakota. I had an ugly mustache, and uh, that's maybe what made the movie interesting. Right, right. However, what made the movie interesting to me, to most people, wasn't the music as much as the quirkiness of it all. Like, North Dakota, like, what, where are we? Or, yeah. I'm, I'm driving a semi, or um, I'm playing music to 80-year-old women. Right, you know, right. rap music, and so that's what made it compelling to people to watch. But yeah, they really portrayed me. For all the footage they got, they could have made me look like a big jackass. Mm. But they really painted me out to be a charming individual. What was it that made that <coughs> that made you go to North Dakota? Well, it was two thousand four. Um, I was pretty much the lowest of my poverty, even though I was at the peak of my creative creativity yeah. um i was on fire creatively but i just couldn't hold down a job and i couldn't tour enough to pay pay my rent and so i was a couple months behind on my rent and george bush had just got reelected, and i was like the world's going crazy and i need a little support so I decided I would move back to North Dakota and put myself right in the heart of the red state, mm. you know, the red state. And um, really just almost as a sociologist, figure out what was going on. Like, why would people be voting against their best interests? Mm. Because this is insane. Like, our country can't, can't survive if this happens ever again. Like, yeah. you can't do that. And uh, yeah, so I went there. Oh, and the third reason was my grandparents were getting old there in the mm. late 80s. And I really wanted to be around them before they died. My grandma is 95. She's still alive. My grandpa oh, died wow. about three, four years ago. <coughs> um, but I really got to soak him up, and that was priceless. So those three reasons. Um, also, I really liked the hermit existence. Yeah. And I moved to a town of 120 I bought a house for $1,000. Mm. Um, it was a town that I'd lived in when I was in second and third grade. First and second grade. It's where my grandparents lived. Yeah. Um, so I knew a lot of the people. Mm. But there were, the young people had all moved away, and it was just the elderly folks. Since then, the oil boom hit. Oh, yeah. So now it's like triple the size it was. Yeah. Well, what did you find out about, you know, like getting a pulse on what's going on? <clears throat> well, you know, I more learned about me than I learned about them. Mm. What I learned about, what I, what I learned is that people are good no matter where you go. It doesn't matter who they vote for. People are good and they're just doing the best they can. Um... An example would be, I had this friend, Vivian. She's, she was 88 years old. Um, she lived across the street from me 
I lived on the outskirts of town, so she had this whole ranch. And she was a good friend, and I knew she was very staunchly Republican, because everybody was. But the day that Obama got elected, she came over to my house and excitedly said, you know, did you hear the news? Like, Obama got elected. And I was so dumbfounded, because I had this in my mind that she, she you know, she might not even want a black president, or yeah. she, he's definitely a, a Democrat, she wouldn't like that, or he's liberal. But she was excited. And when she saw my face, she was like, oh, well, I mean, I, I know you probably don't like him, but I just thought it was kind of exciting that you know, some black people got elected president. Uh -huh. like, to her, it was a big sign that America has come a long yeah. way. To me, I just couldn't speak, I was speechless. But, um, So it's like a lot of people want change and they want hope. I mean, and that's what, that's what he was promising right. and that's what he got. Now, it only lasted maybe a week before the honeymoon was over and then yeah. everyone was like listening to the news channels that would degrade the magnificence of this incredible historic moment. But for that brief week, people like Vivian were excited. Yeah. Now... Part of that might have to do with that they came from, they are from the greatest generation, as you call it. Like, maybe the people from the silent generation, you know, the people in their 70s and 60s might have been a little more curmudgeonly the, 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 the conservatives. But, see, that's another thing I learned is that the people that were around before there was like, uh, before World War II, they come from a different, a different cut of cloth. They're like, they, they eat organic food just because they still grow their own food. Or yeah. they recycle stuff because they remember the depression. Right. So they're kind of like, you know, modern bohemian liberals. But they're not. But it's because they come from a, this European fabric, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. So stuff like that is what I learned. It's like, I didn't so much learn why... It's just that there's these cultural codes that are just embedded in people. Yeah. And there's not much you can do ultimately. Well, what did you learn about yourself there? Uh, I guess I learned that I was, I was prejudiced to them. Mm. You know, I mean, I was prejudiced. I prejudge them. Yeah. Um, and so it, it opened me up artistically in a way to start thinking about spirituality and, and why that's important to people. Mm. You know, or why, um, why being, uh, why trying to push why trying to be all cutting edge? Why that could be offensive to people? You know, like, I guess what I saw is I actually started seeing people in Bohemian blue states as being, I started seeing their bullshit much more. Mm. It's like, I started finding this kind of radical middle ground. It's mm. like, okay, they, there's something here that's really, that, red state folks really have to offer. It's about really having integrity, really um, helping your neighbor out. Yeah. Really um, having a community. Yeah. Uh, all that stuff is really good stuff that I kind of discounted. Right. And so when I went back, I was expecting to think that I was going to be smarter. And, and so my own arrogance, my own... Um, yeah, just snobbery was revealed. Mm. And that was great for me because I started <laughs> expanding my friendships into a much wider range. Mm. And I think ultimately that's what breaks down ignorance on either side is yeah. when you can penetrate a community, you're both going to gain a lot from it. Yeah. And uh, so I just... Uh, 
in terms of being a performer, I can go anywhere. I can go to the, I can go to Republican cattle rancher conference, and I can entertain a group of people with cowboy poems. Yeah. I don't have to pull out my radical punk rock ideas and you know <coughs> foist those on them. They don't care. Right. Right. They just want they just want to like everybody, we just want connection. We want to feel like someone um likes us. And yeah. Yeah. Like what artistically, like where are you at right now? Right now I have three albums that I really want to put out. Mm. One is a kid's record. Just being a dad for the last three years. Yeah. Um, one is basically like trucking songs. Right. You know, like his dad's name's Butch and his brother's name's Buck and his best friend's name's Big Jim. And they're all big men, but the one in the pen is bigger than all of them. I mean, he's a bull. He's a bull. He got horns in the sides of his skull. There's a hump in his back, and his big nutsack just hangs. Real low. You know, like, that's about yeah. the guy I drove truck with. I have a lot of these trucking songs that never got recorded because for the last three years, I just haven't been doing music. Yeah. So there's all those. And then I have, like, a new rap album that wants to come out. I wrote this one about like the Ferguson. Mm. Yeah. The summer in the city where the cops are lethal. They kill at will, but when you bleed, that's illegal. When the poor complain that the field's unequal, the rich lash back like a pack of weasels, you know, that kind of yeah. like radical political stuff that stuff that pisses me off. Um, so now I feel like I can do that and I can do this kind of country stuff that, and they're both. They're both of me. Yeah. Like, I've been through the ringer on both angles and sides, and they, they don't contradict each other. To me, they're the same. It's just... One thing I've learned about my record label, Loner, is I once saw it as the one in the middle of Loner, and the L on the left side, and the R on the right side. So L, one, R. Like where the left and right unite. Mm. That's kind of, I realized, embedded in the word loner is this uh, unity. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that'd be a good point to end it on. Yeah, that's not bad. Well, thank you so much. Man. Thank you for doing this and for touring and being an inspiration. I got to say, you know, um, when I, st when I started checking out your videos and your songs, I was inspired in a real fresh way that I haven't been by hip-hop in a long time because it felt like, uh, it felt true. It felt like real hip-hop. It felt like what hip-hop's supposed to be. Um, and I'm not saying just the old school stuff. I'm saying your rock and roll stuff too. Like it's, um, it's pushing boundaries. It's, it's, it's being reverent to the history of hip hop, but at the same time, uh, finding new ways to keep it alive and fresh. The fact that you're touring the country and including local people and getting, you know, networking like this is, uh, you're, you're being an emissary. And I think that's uh, why our mutual friend wanted us to meet. Yeah. He saw kindred, kindred spirits. All right, thanks again to Chris for doing this. We'll see you next week.